Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thank you so much for joining me here today. We're going to have a lively discussion, a fun discussion. I think you as a listener, to those of you here listening to the program, you'll be challenged, which is exactly what I like. And my guest today is Andrew Koppelman, who is a John Paul Stevens professor of law at Northwestern University. And he is author of Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. Yeah, well, there you go. It's a beautiful cover. It's a really interesting book. I'm not terribly far into it, which I have admitted to our guest. Andrew, I got an email from your publisher, and they said, well, you're a libertarian, so you ought to book this guy. And I said, all right, yeah, he talks about libertarianism. Then I started prepping for this, and I went, I don't know how this is going to go, <laughs> because your book is actually very critical of libertarians and libertarianism. Yeah. And so I think it's going to be a fascinating discussion. But let's start with you. I want to I'm I, it's rare that I meet somebody who is in our sphere and I am a right libertarian. So I was personally attacked by reading your introduction uh, <laughs> of the book. But I'm always a mystery to other libertarians and people. And, and yours in the same vein, but I think maybe on a different side. So I'm curious about your background and what led you to this book and the writing of this book. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew Koppelman. I identify myself as politically on the left. I am concerned with the people who are losing out in the present system, and I think that they can do better, particularly in a society as rich as this one. And I first got interested in this particular issue because of the litigation over Obamacare. And I'm a constitutional law professor. I had to form a view about the litigation that was going on. Just as a lawyer, I thought the district court opinions and later the Supreme Court opinions striking it down as unconstitutional were just didn't make any sense as constitutional argument. And I found myself wondering where these ideas were coming from, if not the Constitution. And that got me interested in the philosophical background of people like Randy Barnett, who were organizing the challenge. And so I wrote a book about the constitutional challenge to Obamacare called The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform, which is about how that litigation happened. And after I was done with it, I just found that I had more things to say about libertarianism. I tried to educate myself about libertarianism when I was writing that book. And so I read Hayek carefully for the first time since graduate school. And I found that I agreed and still agree with Hayek, at least the early Hayek of the road to serfdom, much more than I expected to. I was surprised by that. I also had never read Atlas Shrugged before, and I found myself more horrified by Atlas Shrugged than I expected to be. I and haven't I read I haven't read Atlas Shrugged. I did no thanks. I'm not a Rand awful, fan. <laughs> an awful lot of libertarians have. And so in and I found that a lot of libertarians who I talked to weren't really clear on the differences between uh, these different views of what human liberty consisted of. Early on, I had a conversation with Alex Kaczynski, who was, was the best known libertarian judge in the country. And I told him, I thought there were big differences between Hayek and Rand. And he said, really? I hadn't thought about that. I thought, well, he hasn't thought about it. Maybe I've come up with something new that's worth saying. Started out as an essay and became this book. And I say, I, even as in this book, I end up being a big fan of the early Hayek. And I think that his, the people who despise him on the left and the people who admire him on the right haven't really focused on what he's saying and what he's not saying in The Road to Serfdom. So I actually regard myself as a friend of Hayek. 
Yeah, a funny thing happened on the road to serfdom for you. You became a, a somewhat of a believer in free markets. Let's just for people who don't know who Friedrich Hayek is, can you give us a little bit of a background? You do a beautiful job and a very fair summary of it in the book, but just for listeners so they understand who we're talking about in case they don't know who is he. So Friedrich Hayek is an economist. He grew up in Vienna in Austria, and by the 1930s, he was a professor at the London School of Economics. And this was a time in the 1930s where there was a broad agreement that the economy in France and in England and in the United States were all terrible. The only, the world's most admired economic managers were Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler, because those were the ones who turned their economies around. And so there was a general agreement, we've got to have a planned economy. We don't like the dictators and their methods, but that's what we've got to do. And Hayek thought that this was completely wrong. And he thought that they were recapitulating arguments about socialism. But it happened in Austria in the late 1800s that the English-speaking world didn't know about. And so he wrote The Road to Serfdom, which was published in 1944, basically against the program of the British Labour Party, which wanted to nationalize everything, all of the major means of production, because they thought that was the path to prosperity. And Hayek's argument in The Road to Serfdom was that central direction of the economy was going to be wasteful and it was going to be tyrannical. It wasn't going to deploy resources in an intelligent way, and it was going to centralize power in a scary way. And I think that he was right about both of those things. Um, he did not say that there has to be a minimal state. He did say that markets weren't going to do a good job of dealing with external effects of individual transactions like pollution or activities that have positive externalities, such as giving education to poor kids. It turns out you add a lot of value to the world if you give poor kids an education, but you got to tax people in order to raise the money to do that. But the taxing is worth it because it makes the whole society richer. And so what you end up with in the argument of the road to serfdom, as I read it, is essentially welfare state capitalism. You have a big, robust free market. You've got intense competition. You're going, you have enormous inequalities of wealth because that's what a free market produces. But at the same time, you look after the people on the bottom, the people who suffer unexpected accidents, the people who suffer disease, and you take care, you make sure that the losers are not too badly off. That's essentially the formula that comes out of the road to serfdom. I think it's quite attractive. And I think that there are people on the left who don't really understand that. People who are fans of Marx really don't understand that the whole idea of socialist self-central planning was refuted in the socialist calculation debate in Austria in the 1880s and 1890s, and people haven't gotten that news. And Hayek does, I think, the valuable work of giving people that news. But all of this is very result-oriented. It's about what is actually going to produce prosperity and avoid tyranny. It's not rights-based. Hayek wasn't very good about thinking about rights. And so there's another kind of libertarianism that's more rights-based that I take up in the later chapters. We've really been talking about chapter one. Yeah, Murray Rothbard in, uh, which book is it? It's Every Book You Ever Wrote. Yeah, in, in, in the, the con, it's not Conceived yeah, in Liberty. Liberty and For a New Liberty. And yeah, For a New Liberty. He, he talks about the distinction between the utilitarian libertarian, which you were just talking about, and the moral libertarian. And I think you have in the libertarian movement, especially predominantly right now, it is much more predominantly 
than it was even a decade ago, the moral libertarian that uh, taxation is theft and everything, anything the government does is immoral. And we're going to take that to the extreme. You really take that to task and have some affinity maybe more for the, I don't want to besmirch Cato, but Cato has a little bit more of that utilitarianism. What's the outcome of this? And so if this program works, then don't worry about it as much as this program that doesn't work. You seem to have a real, you just don't seem to cotton to the moral libertarian as much. What is it about it? What is it about that really inspired you to write the book? What I try to say in chapter two is that if we're going to think about rights, rights-based thinking and libertarianism really comes out of a book written by John Locke in 1680s called Two Treatises on Government, where his argument is that we enter into a social contract in order to protect our persons and property. And so government is there for that purpose. And Rothbard quite consciously is adapting Locke's argument to say that's what the purpose of government is. The government is defeating its purpose when it, for example, raises money by taxation where you don't get to decide whether to pay your taxes or not, that's theft. That's not a fair social contract. <clears throat> now, this is bad political philosophy. If you're going to try to think about what a fair social contract is, there are really two reasons for entering into a social contract. One is that consequentialist, it's to your advantage to do it. You want to live in fair terms of cooperation with other people, and social contract is there for mutual advantage. If that's how you're thinking about a social contract, it's actually got to deliver a fair share to everybody, something that you could reasonably agree to. If you are homeless and starving, it's not clear that you have a reason to agree to those terms of cooperation. So that's the problem with the social contract as Rothbard conceives of it. The other approach to the social contract really grows out of the works of Immanuel Kant, is that the idea that you've got an obligation out of respect to other people to enter into a social contract. You've got to bring yourself under a law that applies to everybody else because it's just not possible to have respectful relations in conditions of anarchy. But if you're going to think about a social contract in that way, that doesn't take you to Rothbard either. Kant thought that you actually have an obligation to create a state precisely because you can't live in respectful relations with the condition of anarchy. So either way, what you end up with, I think, is a social contract in which everybody's got to have some stake that gives them a reason to sign on or an obligation to sign on or a prudential reason to sign on. And that really takes you to the political philosopher who libertarians tend to hate, John Rawls, Harvard philosopher who died a few years ago. And so what I try to do in the book is show how really the logic of Locke's argument doesn't take you to Rothbard or to Robert Nozick. It really takes you to Rawls. And my arguments will persuade you or they won't, but I think that's where just the sequence of reasoning takes you if you're going to be a rigorous reasoner as libertarians purport to be. Yeah, John Rawls is incredibly influential, and we're all we're all basically you and I are, are coming from different angles, but we're under the umbrella of liberalism. Although libertarianism is somehow now thanks to Hans Hermann Hoppe, read him that'll really blow your mind about uh, yeah, it's going towards monarchism somehow and rejecting liberal, liberalism altogether. But can you talk about John Rawls? Who was he? Why is he influential? And why do you find him 
to be someone that libertarians ought to listen to despite the surface agreements, disagreements. So, so Rawls is a philosopher working in the social contract tradition. And he starts by asking, if we're going to enter into a social contract, the social contract has to be fair. It can't be contaminated by irrelevant terms. So if we try to decide how things should be distributed in a fair social contract, I can't fairly enter into the social contract by saying, I'm white. White people have always traditionally had more than black people. We want to perpetuate that. So I should get in a fair social contract all these privileges because I'm white. You couldn't fairly enter into that social contract because race is morally arbitrary. It's not a good reason for distinguishing among people. Rawls thought there are lots of morally irrelevant things like that. You know, how much wealth you happen to be born with, what advantages you happen to be born with that other people could benefit from, the market value of your talents. All of that is morally arbitrary. So he thought the question is, if we're going to enter into a fair social contract, suppose you didn't know any of that stuff. You didn't know where you were going to end up in the society. You could end up at the bottom. What kind of terms of cooperation would you agree to? And he thought this could actually justify a lot of inequality because it might be, given that we know this is something that he agreed with Hayek about, that a capitalist economy tends to produce a lot of inequality, but it makes people better off, even the people at the bottom, that in a fair social contract, we would agree to those inequalities that benefit the worst off members of society. But that would also mean that if there are inequalities that don't benefit the worst off members of society, so that you could redistribute to take care of the worst off members without having much effect on incentives to produce, that it would be fair to do that because we all produce wealth together. I'm sitting here in this nice office only because somebody who makes less money than I do cleaned this office last night. And so I and that person cooperate in a system of production where it's very hard to tell just what the value is of what each of us contributed. Certainly the market just tells you supply and demand. It tells you what scarcities happen to be there. And so a fair system would apportion the social surplus in a way that gives the worst off members of society a fair share in the value that they helped to produce. All right, so we'll talk about the morality of the social contract in a moment because I already can hear that in my audience's brain clicking. But how do you determine that value? How do you determine what the value is? Socialists would say we need to, I don't know, have maybe some bureaucracy determine that. Hayek is wild and just saying, let the market decide it completely. What's your standard and where do you come down on how we determine those, those values and inequalities and blending that together? I think that it makes absolute sense for all of the reasons Hayek said for people's reward to be proportional to the market value of the work that they do. Because you want to have incentives for people to work, to move from work that has less market value to work that has more market value. Work that has more market value, other people are willing to pay more for it, it's probably more valuable. This isn't true of everything. There is some extremely valuable work that has low market value. The home health aides who take care of sick old people doing enormously important work, making people's last days 
tolerable, it's humanly enormously important, terribly badly paid. But in general, we want there to be incentives for people to gain education, to gain additional skills, to develop scarce skills that the market needs. So that's why it makes sense for people to have incentives to try to raise their market wage. But this is all about incentives. It's not at all about the intrinsic value of what they're producing. And so the question of what the minimum should be, what you should provide to the people who are, for example, the home health aides or the person who cleans this office, isn't answered by supply and demand. One thing that Hayek was quite emphatic about is that you should not expect markets to give people what they deserve. He thought if you come to markets expecting that, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to become a socialist and we can't have that. <laughs> yeah. I, when you set up the initial piece of hike, we need aggressive free markets, but then also a social safety net. I could hear a lot of people saying, isn't that what we have now? Yeah. Okay. And not as robust as in some places. If you are going to be somebody who's a member of the precariat working as a barista or something like that. You have much better unemployment and healthcare protection in Sweden than you do in the United States. Sweden also has more billionaires per capita than the United States, so it is possible to have both. But yeah, this is largely what we have now. And what I'm writing against is the folks who want to dismantle that. As we are having this conversation, the country is facing an impending crisis because congressional Republicans want to dismantle large parts of the existing social welfare system in order to reduce federal spending. And they're doing it in the name of fairness because they think that it wouldn't be fair to raise more taxes in order to pay for what the government is spending. So really, we're having an argument about political philosophy. Yeah. So do you look at the current system and are you satisfied with it? I'm certainly not. I don't think most of Americans are. And the reason that they want to, to cut that spending is just because the the financial path of the United States is largely going to be unsustainable. Do you disagree with that? Do you? How would you reform our current system to be more sustainable or... I, you know, if the claim is that the United States can't afford to provide a decent standard of living to its elderly and to its poor, you know, the United St one of the distinguishing marks of the United States is that we have grown at a faster rate than any other advanced industrial country. We've compared with Europe, the rate of growth in the United States has been spectacular. We're a very rich country. The gains have largely pooled at the top, and you could raise taxes at the top much more than you have. I think the Trump tax cuts are a terrible mistake. And the Republican Party, again, I think influenced by libertarianism, really hasn't had anything substantial in its program except tax cuts at the top and welfare cuts at the bottom. But I think that we can afford to do this. It's not beyond our means. Now, I, this is not to bless everything that the contemporary American state does. There are all kinds of wastes and inefficiencies, pledges, programs that need to be overhauled and unquestionably, but you wanna do that at retail. There are all kinds of mistakes being made at your typical hospital. Hospital needs all kinds of reform. But if you say, look at the amount of people getting sick in the hospital, what we really need to do is burn down the hospital. That's not the right answer. Yeah, I would say that there is, 
Your critiques of the modern Republican Party of we don't want to do anything just except just cut, cut. It's lacking. I would say there there's a lack of vision, certainly. I guess I don't know that we're going to agree on that the current system is sustainable, but I do think we agree on crony capitalism and how that's a perversion. I did want to ask you because I uh, talk about crony capitalism first, and then I want to talk about maybe a contradiction in your book about that. But I think we need to set the terms of what we're talking about and what you discuss in the book first. One problem for all known societies, capitalist or otherwise, as far back as society goes, there have been centers of power independent of the state that are able to seize control of parts of the state and distort it for their own personal privileges. And so that's not an artifact of the inequalities of capitalism. That's an artifact of the inequalities in any known society. What distinguishes a well-functioning modern society is the state is independent enough that uh, just it's able to resist that kind of pressure. Someone cannot go to the chairman of the Federal Reserve and say, I'd like you to lower interest rates. Here's a bribe. Please do it. That's just not going to work. In the United States, we actually have a state that's independent of that way. You can't bribe or threaten your typical state official, where in large parts of the world, that's how government is done. But there's still lots of areas of corruption. It's possible to get legislation through that uh, does special favors for special interests, generates a lot of waste. A farm bill every few years is a scandal has as its primary function enriching Archer Daniels Midland. Terrible thing. And uh, you need to be able to organize against it. You talk uh, about the Cokes a lot in the book. And uh, another way of corrupting the state is preventing the state from doing things that the state should do. We knew about the danger of climate change decades ago. And the fossil fuel industry with Cokes as probably their, the Cokes as the most energetic political actors within the fossil fuel industry have managed to keep the U.S. government from doing anything about this impending disaster until really you saw uh, small efforts in that direction from Obama, bigger efforts by Biden, which the Republicans are now trying to roll back. And this is another kind of corruption, paying the police officer off to look the other way while you hurt somebody is another form of corruption. And that's essentially what pollution is. If I get to poison my neighbors or to ruin the ecology of the planet for my own personal gain, that's another kind of corruption. And it forms an alliance with libertarianism because libertarians are opposed to anything the state does. And so when polluters want to go after the Environmental Protection Agency, they find that they have friends who think that they are upholding their principles. Yeah, this you talked about pollution in the introduction, and it's one thing that I've always found lacking, that the lack of addressing pollution, for instance, and those bad actors. Can you talk a little bit about that between Rand and Nozick and Hayek and just the lack of libertarian response to something like pollution? Obviously, it wasn't maybe the main concern in the 40s and 50s, no, but it has become more significant. Yeah, Hayek has some offhand remarks about it, saying, well, of course, pollution is something that the state is going to have to do something about. And this then proceeded to enrage Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard, who thought that it was giving the state too much power. But really, this is the kind of problem that only the state can address. 
if I am produ if I am issuing toxins from my plant, then the plant is producing things that people are willing to buy, but I am giving cancer to the neighbors, but I'm only giving increasing the number of excess cancers by a small enough amount. It's going to be impossible for any individual who gets cancer to prove that I caused their cancer. I am going to kill a number of my neighbors with complete impunity unless there is some way for the system to stop me. The only way to do that is to have a bureaucracy of scientists who can study what the effects are of various effluents and emissions and try to figure out what their effects are on human beings and to just be able to issue injunctions from the top saying, for example, you can't any longer emit into the atmosphere particulates that are so tiny that they cross the blood-brain barrier and thwart brain development in infants. You can't do that. No individual tort suit is going to stop that. Only the Environmental Protection Agency can do that. So you need to have one, and it has got to be a pretty big bureaucracy because you've got to have a staff of pretty skilled scientists to figure out what these things are doing. I think that's where a lot of your arguments fall apart for me in that you you couldn't have the free markets take care of this particular problem. You've seen the increase in companies greening themselves to appeal to a new consumer base. You could have in Nozick's Night Watchman State. I personally don't believe in anarcho-capitalism. If my private court disagrees with your private court, what are we going to do? So I do think that there has to be some centralization of force, at least under the courts, and you could have courts in this particular situation between a town, a residence, residents of a town versus a company determine, I don't know that you necessarily need the bureaucracy because go ahead, say that again, please. Who is going to sue if the, uh, if the effect of the emission is that it slows brain developments in infants by a way that can't be proven in any individual infant, but we can tell that in the aggregate, it's going to lower IQ by a couple of points for the whole population, who is going to sue? Who is going to be able to prove damage? The people who are actually damaged, which is how it works now. There's a difference. This is something that I'm quite familiar with as a law professor. There's a big difference between being hurt and being able to prove it in court. All right, so now here's my son, and he lives near your factory, and his IQ was lowered by five points. How am I going to prove that the factory did it? How am I going to prove that, no, I mean, there are some kids who are just genetically slow or they are not well raised by their parents. I can't prove that the factory is the reason that his brain is what it is. They're absolutely impossible to prove. And that's with respect to one person. And you're talking about damage across thousands of people. But that, but centralizing that knowledge in the bureaucracy of the FDA, or the, uh, yeah. the EPA, excuse me, too many, it, you're not necessarily, need, why do you need the EPA to prove that? Because you have research universities, you have people that are willing to come alongside residents in a town to help prove that through discovery. Why is it that a bureaucracy at the federal level is necessary to actually prove this? I just go back to the idea of doing this through litigation. Litigation is the wrong tool for the job. Now, it's, I would have to get into the details of how litigation operates uh, in the same way that if you propose to open a can with a banana, I'm going to have to tell you things about the banana to explain why it won't open the can. But uh, it is impossible. It's a general problem with toxic torts 
that it is very hard to prove causation in individual case, the way cases. The way that we know that it's toxic is because we know its effect across large populations. That's how scientists know what they know about the effects of toxins. You can't ever prove that the effect was caused by the individual agent in any particular case, unless it's a very strong dose. Yeah. I feed you cyanide, they'll be able to prove causation. But is your argument that so we need somebody, we need a, we need the hammer to come along and say, we can't prove this, but we know you're doing it. So therefore, we're going to find you and everybody knows. Well, no, no, the question is, you know, what you mean by the this? No, we can't prove that any individual case was harmed. But if we can show that round people in a population who inhale this particular effluent, we are going to get twice as much cancer, or <laughs> what's impossible to prove in court. Suppose that there's only 40% more cancer. That means that in any individual case, the defendant will be able to say, more likely than not, you would have gotten the cancer anyway, which will be true in every individual case. On the other hand, we know that this effluent is killing people. We just can't prove which people. If you leave this to the courts, the people are going to continue to die on indefinitely into the future. I know, I know we're now I know we're now into arguing hypotheticals and I, I yeah, sorry, no, but no, I think no, it's no, important no. to for this distinction. Yeah. So what would you well, rather I'm, the EPA do versus the courts? The argument for having a government agency do it is that there's no other tool that can do the job. That uh, courts can't do it and the EPA can. The biggest regulatory success of the Obama the Obama administration was restrictions on tiny particulates, bits of soot that are able to cross the broad blood-brain barrier, enter into brain development if they are inhaled, and do really substantial damage to children and to old people. And uh, the Trump administration retrospectively ran a cost-benefit analysis on that regulation and found that the benefits were about five times the costs, even though it cost industry millions and millions of dollars. I don't see how anything other than a government agency could replicate that. Okay, so let's talk about political philosophy. You argue, and I wholeheartedly agree with you, and I have really over the last three or four years, I was just a libertarian podcaster just out there repeating all the memes and taxation is theft. And after January 6th specifically, I went, I think all this stuff I'm saying really has an impact in the real world. So what do I actually really believe? And I've really been thinking a lot about political. I know who John Rawls is now through, through all of this work. And I hope my audience is following along with us. I think there's a real disconnect in people's minds. They just watch the news. They follow the arguments. They hear the slogans. But they're disconnected from maybe the world that you're talking about, which is very important. Why is understanding political philosophy and these arguments actually important and it's not just wasting time in a college dorm room debating these political theories i get my law students ask me the same question because i do bring political philosophy into my law classes <clears throat> and i explain to them that law just is political philosophy with guns it just is uh people have ideas about the appropriate deployment of the coercive power of the state and when people argue about politics they have a political philosophy. 
They have ideas about what the state should and shouldn't be doing. All political philosophers do is they try to make it more rigorous. And it may turn out, as you think about it, as you look at the arguments, that there are some intuitive common sense ideas that turn out to be wrong. It's just lots of common sense intuitions. If you ask somebody, so which weighs more, a pound of feathers or a pound of iron? They're going to immediately think of the iron. That's wrong. They both right. weigh a pound. <laughs> yeah. The, these, uh, talk, maybe talk about the burning down of the house. And you were very critical of Glenn Beck. And yeah. you're very critical of a lot of political commentators. Glenn Beck and Jonah Goldberg on a lot of different teams still sign up. Republican, libertarian-ish, but that was a real-world implication that you used to illustrate that this, even if your libertarianism is Ben Shapiro and Jonah Goldberg and not Murray Rothbard, there's still real-world effects, and uh, you're arguing against it. So there was an episode about 10 years ago when there was a county in Tennessee that decided to essentially privatize their fire protection. They would contract with a nearby city where each individual homeowner would pay a fee in order to get fire protection from that city's fire department. So it was as if that city's fire department, with respect to them, was a private fire department who individuals contracted with. And this old man, he'd paid his fee every year for a number of years. And then one year he forgot and his house caught fire and the fire department came and they watched his house burn down. They wouldn't do anything about it because he hadn't paid his fee. And there was a vigorous debate in the press about how to think about this. And it was happening in the context of the Obamacare fight. And everyone who was having this argument understood that they were really arguing about Obamacare, about whether it was government's responsibility to protect people from unexpected misfortunes. And your house burning down or you getting cancer, same thing. It's a misfortune that came out of the blue. Does the society in general have any obligation to protect you? And there were some commentators, Glenn Beck among them, who said, no, the fire department did the right thing. We're going to have to have more of this in the country because people have got to learn to take more responsibility. And there were people on the left who glommed onto it, who said, look, this is the true face of capitalism. Everybody's on their own. This is cruel. This is inhuman. We need a society that's devoted to people and not profits. And I look at this debate and I say, you guys are both wrong. (laughs) The folks on the left misunderstand capitalism. The folks on the right misunderstand liberty. And they say the real common ground between me and the libertarians is we all believe in liberty. We think that uh, we should want from our government, from our political arrangements and legal arrangements generally, is to enable people to be free to live their lives as they like, which is a controversial view in the world. The governments of Iran or Russia are aiming at very different things than allowing people to live as they like. What's distinctive about libertarianism is the idea that the path to freedom is shrinking government that the smaller the government is, the freer people will be. And I think that's just a mistake. And I think that people who are drawn to the idea of liberty should understand that small government is the wrong prescription for delivering what they and I agree is what we should be after. Okay, so where's the limits? And so this is, I think, the contradiction for me in that it's, you point out, We don't disagree in Mm -hmm. that we want people to be helped. We Mm -hmm. don't want to see anybody's house burned down. We don't want to cut Social Security because we hate old people. You know that I think that's always a very unfair critique. And I I 
Thank you for actually taking the time to figure out what we think and what we believe uh, and being thoughtful about it. Rothbard wants to privatize everything, but go on. There's a couple quotes in here that I did pull. Libertarianism comes in flavors, some more bitter than others. (laughs) And that was one that, that I pulled out. Yeah, I think there is definitely a... You talk about the principled ideologues versus the predators who want to hurt people without interference from the police. I think that's a definite distinction that has grown in the libertarian movement over the last couple years since the pandemic. But where do you find the limits? If if individualism is not the foundation, if private property is not the foundation, if free markets can free us and you're not that uncomfortable with with inequalities, but we need to take care of people like who who gets to make these decisions? Who gets to Aren't you violating Hayek's knowledge principle, which you articulate very well, so I know you understand it. When it comes to making these decisions about how much I must be forced to participate in the social contract, who's determining that? Um, And and how do you differ in your view than maybe what we have now? Or Go ahead. I don't think that there is any answer you can derive from first principles. I think this has to be worked out politically, that it's got to be worked out politically by people who understand the values at stake, who understand that there have to be considerable inequalities if you are going to have the benefits of free market. There has to be a safety net so that uh, people aren't living in unlivable conditions and how you accomplish that. We very quickly get into the weeds of policy wonkery. But uh, once you decide that there's going to be taxation, you are not going to be able to derive from political philosophy what the tax rate ought to be or how graduated it ought to be. That stuff has got to be worked out politically. I don't think well, that's I, I, I'm that not... I can tell you about that. I will say <laughs> that uh, in the United States where it does get worked out politically, the United States is not a place where it is impossible to be prosperous. Yeah, no, for sure. So do you believe in a constitutional republic? Do you think that the form of oh, government yeah. I that we have... constitutional law. That well, doesn't guarantee anything, I know, professor. I, know, I, know. <laughs> I like constitutional law. I think that it's good to have legal restraints on political power. I just don't think that the legal restraints should be baked in restraints on regulation and redistribution. There are lots of constitutional rights that are not constraints on that. The constraints on regulation and redistribution are consequentialist, and uh, figuring them out is a local matter. We've got to look at each particular scheme of regulation and whether it's justified or not. There is, and I think the libertarians have done a very valuable job at showing areas of regulation that are just stupid. The The Civil Aeronautics Board was a scandal. The regulation of interstate trucking was preposterous. And we got rid of all of those things, and Milton Friedman was right about them. But that's a local matter. Question of what kind of regulations there ought to be, we've got to get into much more detail about that. And this is something that libertarians sometimes haven't been so good at. If you read uh, Milton, I have uh, some discussion of Milton Friedman's book, Free to Choose, And there is about two pages in that book where he acknowledges the problem of externalities and pollution, and then he quickly moves on. He just clearly acknowledges that it exists. But then you could 
come away from that book with the impression that government isn't doing anything useful at all with respect to pollution. And that's just wrong. For my own gratification, I want to be iconoclastic because Murray Rothbard is untouchable now in the libertarian movements. What's your assessment of Murray Rothbard and what do you discuss in the book? I have some extensive discussion of Rothbard as uh, I take him seriously as a political philosopher. He's offering arguments uh, based on what he calls the non-aggression principle. And I try to show in the argument in the book that they're pretty bad arguments. There is a certain intuitive attractiveness to it. And his perspective does predispose people to look at retail for things that the state is doing badly. And sometimes those things are right. And every once in a while you read Rothbard, you see a very shrewd judgment. That uh, So he looks at the Soviet Union and he says, increasingly, this is going to be staffed not by true believers, but people who are just trying to advance their careers. Because the only way to advance yourself is to become a government bureaucrat. So people are going to become government bureaucrats because they want higher salaries. And that's their only reason for having that job. And pretty soon you're going to have the Soviet Union staffed with people who don't believe any of it at all. Very shrewd, very smart. So you do find stuff like that in Rothbard. Overall, as a political philosopher, not very good. But then we have to get into the details of the argument. Yeah, which you should just go by the book. And he sure. does. Yes. Yeah, I highly recommend the book. And there's a lot in it that I don't agree with. I think there's, but it's challenging and that's what you really need. And I think that's one of the attractive qualities about Rothbard and the people that really take him as gospel is his certainty. And it's just easier if you have the axiom of the non-aggression principle. And I think what you're offering up is a little bit more of, uh, it's a little more messy. (laughs) Yeah, reality, a lot more chaotic, a lot less clean. There's the same kind of certainty in Ayn Rand. And uh, I am reminded of Ambrose Bierce's definition of the word confident. He said that it can be defined as mistaken at the top of one's lungs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not a huge Rand fan. I'm anyways, but... All right. I could talk to you forever. We agreed to 30 minutes. We're already up to 45. Maybe we can have you back at some point in the future. I would love that. Yeah. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, really appreciate the thought that you put into the book. The book is Burning Down the House, How Libertarian Philosophy Was Corrupted by Delusion and Greed. It's got a great cover. You will find it challenging and interesting, and uh, you will agree and not agree at certain points. And that's what we love here on the Chris Spangle Show. Professor, where can people, other than the book, which will be in the show notes, where can people follow if you if they want to learn more about your work? I have a website, andrewkoppelman.com. So easy to find it. And then I have a lot of more specialized academic papers that are on the Social Science Research Network. If you Google my name, it's easy to find lots of my work available for free on the internet. All right, Professor Andrew Koppelman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listener, for watching and listening here on The Chris Spangle Show. We thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this, if you got something out of it, if you were challenged, please share this with a friend. Spread the word about the show. Spread the word about the book. That is how you help content creators that you appreciate. Thank you so much. We'll see you again here on The Chris Spangle Show.